0: The kids can go off to their classes and the rest of you can turn to psalms 22 as we begin our study in the book of psalms i would start with asking the question what do we do when god is silent john piper said all god's saints if allowed to live long enough are led into the lonely, disorienting, weary wilderness of God's silence. Many Christians all throughout history have been in this place. One of them is a guy named Horatio G. Spafford, who you may be familiar with. Uh, he's the author of the Psalm It Is Well with My Soul. He's a guy who lived in the 1800s and uh, was a prominent lawyer in the Chicago area. He and his wife had four kids and over time had amassed a great deal of property holdings uh, in the Chicago area. And then came the great Chicago fire, which wiped out most all of the city and with it almost all of the property that they owned. And not just that, but they also lost all of the land holding records, which stated who owned what property. And so when it was all said and done, they would end up losing almost all of the land that they owned as well. At that same time, he and his family were going to be headed to Europe, uh, and he decided he needed to stay home and deal with these issues. And so he sent his family on ahead, And they headed off to Europe. On the passage to Europe, the boat sank. And their four kids ended up drowning. His wife was saved, and he and his wife ended up going on to have three other kids, one of which ended up dying as well. So out of the seven kids that they had, only two of them would end up surviving. This led Horatio into a place of depression, which ultimately gave way to mental illness uh, in his life. And he found himself dying in that state just a few years after that. He found himself very much in the place that David finds himself in Psalm 22, asking the question, where are you, God? I have served you. And yet, when I need you, where are you? We still encounter this question today in many different situations. Sometimes it's a health crisis or a family crisis or a marriage crisis. And we find ourselves praying, asking God to intervene in that situation or sometimes just to explain it. And the result of that is to get back silence. This is where David finds himself. And Psalm 22 is an outpouring of this conversation between him and God as to how he's feeling, where he's at. And so we'll read it together and then see what we can pull from it. He begins in verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried out to you and, and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, since he takes pleasure in him. You took me from my mother's womb, making me secure while at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me because disaster is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mulling and roaring. I am poured out like water and all of my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have enclosed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothes. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. My strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lions. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or detested the torment of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but listened to me when... But listened when he cried to me, when he cried to him for help. I will give... I will give praise in the great congregation because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will... Praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to you, Lord. He rules over the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life, their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come to tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, what he has done. Let's pray and ask the Lord what he has for us in this text today. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for David's raw expression of where he's at and how he feels. Lord, just help us to look at it and be encouraged by it and to take from it the message that you'd have for us. So, Lord, let the Holy Spirit soften our hearts to the message that he has for each of us in this. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, David begins with His place, but not just where he's at, also recognizing who God is. So he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. It is as if David is saying... God, I don't feel you and I don't see you, but I know that you're holy. So even in this place of struggle and torment, he hasn't lost sight of the fact that God is sovereign still. Even if it's just at this point an act of will. But he still needs the reassurance of God's work in his life. And so he looks back, Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. So lacking God's work in this situation, in the moment, he looks back to, okay, what has God done? And so he could be looking at things like God's work in the nation of Israel itself or even in his own history itself. You could be thinking back to things like when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and they cried out to God and God sent Moses to rescue them. Or you could be thinking of not long after that when Pharaoh says, wait a minute, I didn't actually want to let them go and I'm going to either bring them back or kill them and raises up the army of Egypt to go after them. And God sends A cloud of fire to stop the army and allows the people to walk across the sea on dry land. This pattern is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Judges, the people turn back to God and they cry out to God for salvation and he raises up a judge to save them. Even in David's own life, God raised up Saul to rescue them from the Philistines. And also in David's life, God also raised or God also saved David from Saul time and time again. So David thinks back to what God has done, and this leads him to reaffirm his relationship to God. He says in verse 9, You took me from the womb, making me secure while at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. But do not be far from me, because distress is near and there is no one to help. So, he looks back to what God has done, and then he says, Okay, God, you have been faithful to me in the past. I am reaffirming myself to you. You are still my God, even if I can't feel you. And then he turns right back to seeking God again. So he's been praying, God hasn't been answering, he looks back, he reaffirms where he's at in relationship to God, and then he goes right back into pleading for God's action. But God allows him to go on struggling. We see in verse 7, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. And then he talks about, in verse 12, Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mulling and roaring. This isn't speaking so much of physical danger, though he goes into talking about that in the next few verses. But here he's talking about these people who are not following you are successful. It is, in a sense, he's saying, God, I have been following you and the result of that for me is persecution. But these guys who do not follow you and are persecuting me, they're getting all the Chick-fil-A. They're successful and wealthy. They're prospering. And here I am suffering. And then he goes on to talk about the actual uh, persecution itself. I am poured out like water and all of my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof, roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. So for the first 19 verses here, David is going back between this is my situation, but this is who you are. This is my situation, but this is what you've done. And then he moves on in verse 21 to finally going from this is my situation to this is what you will do. And he begins that in verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or detested the torment of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great congregation because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever, for all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to you, Lord. He rules over the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Everyone who cannot preserve his life, their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, what he has done. Now, we don't know from this text exactly where David is in his life, and we don't know exactly what the situation is. It appears to be persecution, and that fits the theme of David's life in the Psalms. And while we do know that God ultimately does intervene in David's situation, we don't know when or if directly God responded to David's plea in Psalm 22. But David is speaking of a salvation yet to come. Now, we know that David's familiar with the promise of Messiah, but certainly doesn't understand that to the degree that we do today. In fact, we understand from the New Testament now that Psalm 22 is actually speaking and pointing to Jesus Christ himself. We know that several ways, but one of them is just walking through the verses as it relates to Jesus. For example, in verse 7, we see this mocking happening. And comparing that to Jesus, he was also in a place of being mocked. After being arrested, he gets beaten. And they're yelling or saying to him, Who beat you? Prophesy that. Who did it? Or later when they're proclaiming Jesus to be the king of the Jews, that's a mocking thing. It wasn't to honor him, or even on the cross, they're goading Jesus to save himself. You saved other people, but you can't save yourself. In verse 14, we see this pouring out of water and Jesus was in that position as well. In verse 15, he lost all his strength and was dehydrated. We see this in Jesus as well. After being beaten, and whipped and stripped and forced to carry the cross, and then being nailed to that cross, he finds himself at a loss of strength and also dehydrated. In verse 18, they cast lots for his clothes. They did that to Jesus as well. In verse 16, we get hands and feet being pierced. And Jesus obviously was nailed to the cross. And had his hands and his feet pierced. And then ultimately, Jesus shares the same words from Psalm 22, associating himself with this text. Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've heard this put many, many times that Jesus was crying out because of the full wrath of God for sin on him. On the cross. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, God, where are you? You see, Jesus finds himself now, for the first time in all eternity, separated from God the Father. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who has eternally existed with God as God, now finds himself alone with that deafening silence. And this is not for no purpose. It's not that God was mad at Jesus, or God forgot about Jesus, or God was not interested. It was God's perfect plan for humanity. You see, we sinned and... We're separated from God and so God wanting to reunite us with himself sent Jesus the perfect sacrifice to take on the sin of humanity so that we can be reconciled back to God. And so the silence of Jesus is anything but purposeless. And so Jesus becomes for us the example of the purposeful silence of God. But Jesus is not just the example of the purposeful silence of God. Jesus is also the assurance, the promise to us of God's speech to us. If you look in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it begins with this statement in verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us with his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In the original text, it says, He has spoken to us by Son. So it's not that Jesus brings God's speech to us, it is Jesus is God's speech to us. And so Jesus is the example, not just the purposeful silence of God, but Jesus is also the assurance of God's speech to us. And so this brings us back to the question, what do we do when God is silent? A couple years ago, a mentor of mine was telling me a story about he and his wife, not long after they had gotten married, had decided they were going to have some kids. And so they started trying to do that. And a few months later... She wasn't pregnant. And after a year went by, they decided, well, maybe we should go ahead and talk to a doctor. So they went and it was decided that the husband was the problem and that could be fixed with a surgery. And so they went ahead and did that and then got back to their business of trying to have kids and a year after that, nothing. Two years after that, nothing. Three years after that, nothing. Four years after that, nothing. Five years after that, nothing. Finally, seven years later one night, my friend had just gotten into bed when he felt the Holy Spirit prompting him to, to have his wife take a pregnancy test. So he told her what the Holy Spirit had said to him, and so she went and took the, the test. To their surprise, she was in fact pregnant. And nine months later, they had a baby that, during routine testing, they discovered had a metabolic disease that, while incurable, could be treated by a proper diet. What's interesting is this disease had only just been discovered that year. So had they had kids seven years before when they wanted to, All those kids would have died. Now, that's a great example of God's purposeful silence in an outcome that we like to have, or in that case, it was the outcome they wanted to have, ultimately. And that's not always necessarily the outcome that God gives us. But we do have the assurance that God does everything for his sovereign will and for our good. The Bible tells us, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is not prosperity gospel stuff. God says this to his people in a time when they are in exile. So God does work, even in his silence, to bring about his goodwill. So, what do we do when God is silent? I think we can take some cues from David. We seek after God. And then we look back at what has God done in our lives. It's not hard to, once you've started going down that road, at first you think, hmm, what has God done? And then you start remembering a story. And that story leads to another story, which leads to another story, which leads to another story. And then you come to that point of saying, wow, God, you have worked, you have acted. You have done incredible things in my life. I can see this in my own family. My my mom comes from a dysfunctional family that lived on a bus and traveled around the country, not because they liked to travel, but because they were always one step ahead of the police. And you look at statistics and you say, hmm, statistically speaking, I should be in prison right now. That is the work of God in our lives. And remembering those stories then leads us to reaffirm God's relation or who we are in relationship to God. You are my God. I am secure in you. I will stick with you. And then we look to Jesus. Because Jesus is the example of God's purposeful silence. And Jesus is also the example of God's speech to us. Let's pray.